0: This is KCLR's Bottom Line
1: with John Purcell.
0: Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the city's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie.
2: Hello, good morning, and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. I'm John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock. I hope you're well on this Saturday morning. Thanks to Brian Redmond for the last two hours. This morning on the bottom line, I'll be talking to a Carlo woman who left Ballinabrana to work in the world of corporate philanthropy and corporate social responsibility and who's now running a worldwide campaign to bring change to the food industry. The brewery quarter in Kilkenny has been hailed as the biggest development opportunity in Kilkenny City for a lifetime. And in a week when some county councillors have questioned progress on the project and whether it has a future, we'll be talking to the chief executive of Kilkenny County Council about the project in these COVID times. Are plans for the ambitious project on track? Or is the development of thousands of square feet of offices a waste of money in an era of home and remote working? And I'll be talking to a Cork woman who was chosen Kilkenny as the location to uh, to base and grow the business she established three years ago. She's grown her business dramatically over the last year during COVID and she hopes to triple the number of employees working in her company, CR, payroll to 40 by the end of this year. All this and more between now and 10 o'clock. But first, the biggest business story of the week was the announcement yesterday by Nat West in the UK, the parent company of Ulster Bank, the third pillar in the Irish banking system, that they are going to wind down the bank which has been in operation in Ireland for well over 150 years. A difficult day for many employees and a lot of uncertainty for clients of the bank. Earlier I spoke with economist Jim Power and talked to him about what NatWest's decision means for Irish business. I began by asking him to give me some information about the scale of Ulster Bank's operation in Ireland and its importance in our banking infrastructure.
1: Um, I I suppose the first thing to say, John, is that we have, over the last 20 years, and particularly over the last 10 years, lived through absolutely momentous change in the Irish banking market. And when you live through that sort of change, you probably don't notice it. But if you think about the names that have gone, Bank of Scotland, Danske, Rabobank, Anglo-Irish Bank, Irish Nationwide, um, and now we find after 160 years in the Irish market... Um, Ulster Bank is about to begin a wind-down that will probably take about five years to work through. Um, It it was, I'm sorry, it is the third largest player in the Irish banking market. Um, It accounts for about 15% of mortgages. That's around €14.5 billion. Um, It has in total, including mortgages, a loan book of just over €20 And about four billion of that is to the SME sector, um, so it's it's a it's a big player in the lending market, particularly for the SME sector of the economy, which is the one I'd be really concerned about. In why? Why is it,
2: now. Jim, um, that you think? You know, it's amazing when you actually reel off the list. Why? Why is it so difficult for a third force in in Irish banking?
1: Um, well, you have two dominant players and um, I was sort of thinking about it this morning that those of us of a certain age, we remember when AIB and Bank of Ireland dominated the market totally and there was a couple of smaller players, you know, including Ulster that was trying to make an impact but, but couldn't really. And that's what we're returning to now. I mean, it's it's a very small market, okay, there's a you know, population of 4.8 million people um, you know, with half of those not really banked, so it's it's a it's a very small market. And um, when oh, in the run up to the crash, you know, it became incredibly competitive when the Bank of Scotland's of this world start to come in to offer very cheap mortgages, so it created a very competitive situation. Um, and then, of course, we had the banking crash. And the legacy of that, you know, continues to unfold. And the, the problem for Ulster Bank really is that um, it's okay. It costs the Ul- Ulster on the island of Ireland, including the North, which is not subject of this wind down, but including the North, the island of Ireland had around fifteen billion pounds sterling pumped in by the parent RBS and now called NatWest over the last decade. So. It left a very bad taste in the mouths of the owners. And secondly, it has a huge cost base. Okay, it has 2,800 staff. It has 88 branches. Um, its its cost base is much higher than ARB or Bank of Ireland. And also its technology system um, is way behind and does require very, very significant investment to bring it up to any sort of acceptable standard and we have seen over the last couple of years um, at least one pretty calamitous failure in their IT system. So uh, everything was against Ulster Bank actually surviving and I think anybody that would have sort of analysed what was going on would have recognised that the demise of the bank from the from Ireland um, was pretty inevitable.
2: And you but, think that the, yeah. that the implications are very serious for banking in Ireland, and and that the government needs to take action. Why do you think it's so serious, and what needs to be done?
1: Well, um, I, I I think um, competition is really important. You know that there's no doubt about that um, in any market. Okay, I mean when Bank of Scotland entered the mortgage market back in 1999, overnight the average cost of a mortgage fell by at least 1.5%. So when you have a duopoly in a market, which is what we're going to end up with now, that means that two players dominate the bulk of the market. That's AIB and Bank of Ireland. Um, There's a lack of competition. And when you get a lack of competition, what happens? Well, interest rates tend to be higher. um, Bank charges tend to be higher. Because um, if, if you don't like the interest rates they're charging you, if you don't like the charge, the bank charges they are charging you, what can you do about it? You know, there's nobody else to go to. So the, the lack of competition in the marketplace is going to be a huge issue. And indeed, for the four billion or so in SME lending, um, you know, those SME companies, and indeed all SME companies, may struggle to get banks to actually do business with them over the next couple of years because the sme sector is clearly the sector of the economy that is most adversely affected by COVID 19. a lot of smes particularly in certain sectors that you know the hospitality and the whole tourism area for example um, a lot of those businesses are in serious trouble now and will require significant assistance from their banks to get through this over the next few years. And I'd be a little bit worried that the SMEs, the smaller ones particularly, will not get the sort of support that they require. So basically, um, it's the lack of competition. It's the creation of um, a a virtual monopoly situation, two banks dominating over 60% of the market. That is never good. And so I I think, and I argued this 10 years ago, uh, just after the last banking crash, that it, as banks exited, started to exit Ireland and as it became very clear that international banks had then and still have no interest in coming into the Irish market because it's too small, there's not enough money to be made in it. Um, so I argued back then that the state should step in and create a, a national bank, you know, along the lines of the old ACC or ICC, that's the Agricultural Credit Corporation and the Industrial Credit Corporation. I mean, those banking models worked well back in the day for the sectors that they served. Um, unfortunately, they they all went the direction of property and eventually, you know, went were taken over or went out of business. Mm. But as originally envisaged, those banks were good. And I, I have argued, and I think the argument is back on the table now, that the state needs to step in and needs to create a third banking force. And, and, and there's many possibilities here. You know, there is PTSB, which is 75% owned by the state. Um, we have the post office network uh, that could certainly get involved. We have the credit union movement, which could certainly get involved. So I think the foundations are there for creating a third significant national banking force that would provide competition to the other two players. Um, I would like to see that happening, um, but I'm just not convinced that the political will or bravery take a step like that actually exists at the moment
2: well we'll see over the coming years and months i think um it'll it'll unfold over years but presumably action needs to be taken sooner rather than later moving on jim um just on thursday evening and friday morning news breaking uh rather you know not any big announcement but broken by Kira Field in the irish mirror in an interview with uh, Mehal martin that the lockdown looks set to go on for another nine nine weeks
1: yeah, I, I was astounded, I have to say, at the blase way in which Taoiseach just threw that out there. Um, and this is the one thing that is really, I suppose, making me more and more disillusioned, angry, whatever sort of adjective <laughs> you want to use. But it's the, the communication exercise around this is dreadful. You know, we, we, we have various government ministers, including the Taoiseach, coming out giving different messages almost every second day. We have the Minister for Health with all sorts of different messages day to day. We have Neffet coming out with their own messages. We have all these people throwing headlines out there, which hit the media every day about the lockdown, about the vaccine rollout and so on. And, And there's no consistency. I mean, people can justifiably feel incredibly confused at the moment about where we really are. So I think the government really needs to get its act together on the messaging front. communications and the use of words is very important at a time when the economy, but also people's mental health is so fragile. Um, In terms of another nine weeks lockdown, um, you know, that's just going to create further devastation for all of those hospitality businesses out there, particularly for non-essential retail, all of those businesses that are shut down for gyms, for hairdressers, it is just going to increase the financial burden. And if they're going to go for another nine weeks of lockdown, which the Taoiseach has suggested, and of course that could change again next week, but if they're going to go for another nine weeks of lockdown from March 5th, well then they really are going to make sure that they are going to pump a lot of money into the businesses and the households that are worst affected by this, because if they don't, we would be left with a very sad, um, high street environment out there with shops, restaurants, businesses gone, um, never to come back. So at a time like this, you know, it is really important that the government maintains as much financial support as possible. Of course, that is building up um, a further debt burden for the country, with you know longer term implications, uh, but there, there is no choice if the government is going to continue to pursue this path, which it appears intent on doing. Um, so it's, uh, and, and I, uh, I would also say that uh, talking to small business owners in those businesses, as a, as I do quite a lot, last year there was anger. This year, there is a sense of sort of. Um,
2: resignation, resignation you know.
1: yeah ab- absolutely um, a lot of them are just totally dispersed, and um, I I have been a critic of Nefit all the time because I don't believe it ever did a proper risk assessment um, you know it just shut virtually everything down without any real examination of just how risky certain activities are and indeed I do believe also that policy has been heavily driven by social media Mm-hmm. You know, people telling stories about something happening in a GA clubhouse or or whatever. Um, you know, so I, I I don't. I think we will look back in hindsight and say that the approach taken here was not a good one. That a lot of mistakes were made, and unfortunately, the longer term consequences of that for businesses, for the the overall economy, and for the mental health of people, particularly young people, and elderly people you know is very dramatic so what we what we really need to see now is the government getting the pencil out and really pushing the vaccine program forward as much as possible the Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants.
0: Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie
2: Yes, good to talk to Jim uh, Power there. Uh, always interesting views on Ulster Bank and where we are and I, I'd echo what Jim was saying. Um, I've talked to some people in businesses during the week and um, there is a funny humour out there. And um, Humour is the wrong word but a, a funny state of mind because people people facing a lot of challenges. Now, uh, one of the big challenges we as the human race uh, face, of course, is sustainability and I came across the work of the World Resources Institute when talking to a business contact in London some time ago and I was pleasantly surprised to learn that a Carlow woman is responsible for heading up one of its key programs called the Cool Food Pledge. Her name is Edwina Hughes and is now, though now based in London, Edwina hails from Balnabrana. and we heard Al- Olivia Flanagan from Balnebrana earlier, taking on Ireland's easiest quiz. So I thought it would be a good idea to invite Edwina on the program to tell us a bit about her career since she left Carlo. Good morning, Edwina. Morning, John. How are you? Very, very good. Now, first, before we get into your Carlo roots, tell us about the the World Resources Institute.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, the World Resources Institute uh, is a global think tank. So it has about a thousand people working across the world on different campaigns like uh, ocean health, forests and food, um, and we work with institutions like universities, cities and government to try and effect change.
2: Yeah, and it's an important uh, issue for the human race, but a very important issue for business as well.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
2: Um, tell us about the Cool Food Food Pledge, which you're, you're the uh, head of.
3: So, the Cool Food Pledge is a campaign to encourage organizations that serve food to commit to a, a science based target for the food that they serve. So, um, this is relevant to any organization that food feeds people at scale. So, universities, cities, restaurants, of course, um, but a range of organizations. So, IKEA is in membership and they're like the fifth biggest restaurant in the world. Really? So, the, the important, yeah. <laughs> The important point about it is that it's a science-based target that aligns with that vision that the Paris Agreement um, laid out for us, that, that climate warming needs to keep under a certain temperature and that the food system needs to align with that and we need to really reduce the climate impact of the food that we eat.
2: Yeah, and so tell us a bit about your day-to-day work as part of the Cool Food um, Project uh, and the World Resources Institute. What kind of things are you actually doing and what kind of businesses are you interacting with?
3: Well, my job is to kind of take the really interesting science and translate it for people to kind of get their heads around. So we've got a a team of uh, environmental researchers who have spent years looking at the food system and looking at, you know, um, peatlands, looking at, sustainable fish, uh, thinking about food waste. And they've come up with really interesting insights as to what needs to change across all of those areas. And one of those is about shifting diets. And so my role is to help organisations like IKEA, uh, New York University, Harvester, City of Milan, to help them to to shift their consumers' diets away from climate-impactful foods and towards less than climate-impactful foods.
2: Yeah, now uh, you mentioned those those global brands and those international organisations. It's a long way from Brana. Tell us a bit about your journey um, from Brana to the World Resources Institute.
3: Yeah, well, it is a long way, I suppose. Uh, but I was always planning on, um, you know, working in social justice. I think from a very young age, that was sort of on my mind. Um, so I went to school in Carlo and then went to St Leo's went on to Trinity College, uh, studied economics and business, and then did a master's in corporate philanthropy. Um, I think what I felt was that corporate philanthropy and corporate social responsibility 15 years ago in Ireland, it wasn't a massive area. Uh, sustainability has only just really emerged in the last couple of years as a really strong area that you can work in. So I felt that it was a, a good move to come to London and to, you know, to sort of get a, get a job here and, and learn a bit more.
2: Uh, my impression is that uh, companies are rapidly adapting to the, the challenge, um, how do you find the response from companies, you know, because the challenges facing companies uh, are, are legion in terms of just keeping the show on the road and, and society has kicked the sustainability can down the road quite a bit, has that stopped and are companies actually starting to get to grips with the, the cha- those challenges as well as the challenges of keeping the show on the road?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, we're all very aware that right now keeping the show on the road is the hardest thing. You know, it really is such a tricky time, particularly for the kind of organisations I'm talking to. You know, they're food services organisations, they're hospitality organisations. They're closed at the moment. You know, a lot of the people I normally talk to are on furlough or they're just waiting to see what's going to happen next. So there's a lot to be said for keeping that show on the road. But I think what we know now is that this climate emergency is, is, you know, it's coming down the track very quickly and it's not something that government can do on its own or the agricultural sector or the power sector. You know, it has to be owned by all sorts of organisations and we all need to kind of put our shoulders to the wheel in order to really come up with solutions to do business in a way that, yes, kind of gives people a livelihood and supports them, but also doesn't kind of the resources of the, of the planet at
2: the same time. Mm. So, specifically, what kind of stuff are you trying to get people in the food uh, sector? You know, restaurants, um, staff, uh, canteens, although those are mostly closed down at the moment. But what kind of people, you know, what should people in the food industry be thinking about? What's the World Resources Institute trying to get people to do?
3: Well, we've got this piece of research called uh, Building a Sustainable Food Future. And so there are, like, a menu of things you can change in the food system. If you work in hospitality or in food, you know, we've got loads of resources online at coolfood.org. And that'll give you um, a great introduction to what the climate impact of food looks like, the kind of changes you might make. We've got a playbook for food service that basically lists 23 interventions that help you to shift your consumers to eating more planet-friendly food without impacting on your bottom line, which is key. This isn't about kind of, you know, doing a very virtuous thing and then not being able to make any money. The road that we're kind of forging here is one where people shift their diet slightly to eat more plants and eat less animal-based products and still that restaurants and food service can still uh, make money and that people are eating well, uh, they're full, they love food, it's delicious. So it should be, you know, a viable solution for food
2: service. And uh, Edwina, what would you say if we take a step back and go back to the primary producers, the beef farmers of Carlo Kilkenny and so on, less meat doesn't sound like good business for them.
3: I think being a beef farmer in Ireland has always been hard and, you know, I grew up on a farm. We had cattle, we had sheep and we had cereals. So I'm under no illusions that it's not an easy road. I think this is a challenge that is going to have to be tackled by farmers. So I think the sooner that governments get on board and start thinking about how they incentivize farmers to farm differently, to build some of this climate Uh, thinking into their farming methods the better it's going to be for everyone but they can't do it without help you know they need government to support them and to back them And, and it is all about kind of thinking about the farming system of the future and what we need to build that
2: well Edwina, it's a pleasure to talk to you and I'd love to check in with you again in the future and it's good to know uh, that Carlo Woman is leading the charge in the World Resources Institute and with the Cool Food uh, Pledge and people can check out uh, a lot very comprehensive website for the World Resources Institute. Thanks for joining us this morning on the programme Edwina. No
3: problem, thanks
2: John. Okay, uh, that was Edwina Hughes originally from uh, Ballinabrana in Carlo, and now heading up the Cool Food Pledge for the World Resources Institute. Now, talking about corporate social responsibility, I want to pass on a bit of important information to listeners in the south of County Kilkenny that the road is currently closed between Mulnavat and Luke's Well after a collision there. So please avoid the area if possible. It's just coming up to 33 minutes after nine o'clock. You're listening to the bottom line. After this short break, I'll be talking to Colette Byrne, who's the Chief Executive of Kilkenny County Council about the Abbey Quarter in Kilkenny. Stay tuned.
0: Local at heart.
2: Local at heart, indeed. John Purcell with you on the bottom line. The program for and about business on Casey Lawrence. Twenty six minutes away from ten o'clock. Edward Hayden coming up at ten o'clock, and he'll have lots to keep you entertained uh, throughout the morning. So do stay tuned. Just a reminder to listeners uh, in the south of County Kilkenny that the road is currently closed between Mulnavat and Luke's Well after a collision there. So avoid the area if possible, and stay tuned to Casey Law for lots of traffic information throughout the day and indeed. Every day, that's what we're here for, is to keep people informed. Now, the Abbey Quarter is a huge site in the centre of Kilkenny City and a really exciting uh, vision to create a vibrant new urban quarter in the heart of the medieval city uh, is at the heart of the development plans of Kilkenny County Council. Um, Of course, all those plans were uh, unveiled in a vastly different world. The development of large offices uh, is central to the first phase i think of the plan and we've all seen people in the center of kilkenny city the crane and the really impressive looking building work going on but of course uh, questions were raised during the week at kilkenny county council about how it's going on and whether the jobs promised will actually materialize so given the importance of it as a business issue i thought it'd be a good idea to invite our next guest colette byrne who's chief executive of kilkenny county council on the show good morning colette morning john tell us um i think there were about 500 jobs uh, um promised associated with this site the the abbey quarter and um, the office block seems to be that this is the old brew house seems to be at an advanced stage of building how's it going we hear a lot about changes in working plans are you optimistic that the plan is going well and that the jobs will materialize
4: Well, I suppose, John, just to start with, I suppose no doubt COVID has certainly upset lots of things. And if it wasn't for COVID, we'd probably have the office block finished at this stage. We haven't. It's under construction, like every other construction site, it's closed at the moment. And we're waiting, I suppose, for the restrictions to be eased so that we can get our contractors back on site.
2: And is it possible to give a kind of completion date, or is that just plucking figures from the air at the moment?
4: If we could get back on site you're probably looking at three to four months.
2: Wow, that close.
4: Who knows when we'll get actually back on site and obviously with any of these shutdowns it takes a little bit of time to get back up and running to full tilt, if you know what I mean, when the contractors get back on site. So and then we all know I suppose COVID has changed how we all carry out our work. So there are, you know, issues that need to be addressed to make sure everyone is safe on site, etc. But look, I'd be confident enough, I suppose it's one of the projects we have on site at the moment. The second one would be the, uh, the Riverside Park and the Skateboard Park, and we're probably, if we got back on site, there's probably no more than four weeks' work to complete that project and open it to the public. But you talked about offices, John, and I suppose how things might change and everything else. And I think we're all waiting to see what might happen when COVID finishes. And at the moment, I suppose there's enforced working from home in lots of cases. But I think the general feeling would be when choice comes back into where people can work, it certainly will be a blended approach to working. So Mm -hmm. there will be a need for offices. The office block we're talking about in the brew house is about 5,000 square metres of offices. Um, it can be let as one building. It could be let as nine different units. So it can, it's fairly flexible in what can be accommodated in the building. From, and I suppose that was important from the start. that We ha- built in that flexibility. You're not looking for one big tenant to take the whole building. Um, you're probably looking at smaller units, and certainly we can accommodate smaller unit if needed
2: and how's well, the how's the marketing of that going have you got people signed up to go into it or well, is that possible no is it just finish it first
4: up? no i was well i suppose some people think you should have what's called a pre-let before you start a building the reality even when things were going well probably the only pre-let on commercial buildings were in dublin and i think there was only two of them at the height of things when we were really going well at national level so it's not that simple to talk about that you'd have a building that would be pre-let before you'd even start working on it and I suppose the challenge you have John is in it's the time frame you're trying to deal with like I'm in Kilkenny a little over five years and in that time frame lots of jobs new jobs and new companies and businesses have come to Kilkenny many of them looked at the Abbey Quarter but the reality is we hadn't a building ready to allocate them if they were interested. So what we're trying to do now is get building ready, get the brew house ready, get it let, and then also follow on and move ahead with planning for the next building. Mm. So that when the IDA, and I suppose the IDA are the main ones who would be bringing new international business into the country, who want to set up and establish a base here in Ireland. So when they come looking for accommodation, at least we'd be able to show them the pipeline we'd be able to have certainty if it's through planning. Because one of the challenges I have is most companies, I suppose, understand the planning system in Ireland. They hear a little bit about the delays that can happen when something goes to onboard Panala and it's out of a local authority's control and all the rest of it. And that's all... Very valid. I mean, people are entitled to have their views on any building or any development that's proposed. But it does mean there's that little bit of uncertainty. So, what the Abbey Quarter Partnership is trying to do, I suppose, is one, have a building that we can show and that is of a standard. And I know your earlier conversation was about sustainability. I suppose the brew house and all of the Abbey Quarter is being developed to the highest of environmental standards. It will meet NZEB, NERO near zero energy, it'll meet the lead standards. So you're talking about, I suppose, very modern building, modern facilities in an existing old building in the case of the brew house. But then we're moving on to actually seek planning. We're about to appoint a design team to progress the next building. And the next building will have a bit of mixed use in it. It's at the back of the brew house building and I suppose what we're trying to do the next building is an important building because it will be the first building that will actually front out onto the new street which will run I suppose from St Francis Bridge up to Bateman Key mm. and it'll be important I suppose that the ground floor of any of these buildings in particular that are offices above but that the ground floor brings life onto the street okay so
2: just in relation to into in the relation to the brew house five thousand square meters which is over fifty thousand square feet yeah. of space we understand the difficulties in terms of finishing it it's three to four months to finish it as you say but like whether the builders can get back on site at, at the end of april may or whatever we don't know but say roll 12 months forward how confident are you that the that the though that space will be 100 percent less let's say 12 months down down the line
4: I suppose none of us can ever be 100% confident, but I'm confident knowing, I suppose, the pipeline that we have, the inquiries we're having, and the intent of some of the inquiries.
2: And what about whether these are going to be just moving the deck chairs around, that it might be somebody moving from, say, an office outside of Kilkenny into Kilkenny? Are these going to be new jobs? Are they going to be new companies? What's your feeling on that?
4: I think it'll end up being a mix. I suppose if you take it, John, as I said, I'm in Kilkenny five years, and in those five years, a number of new businesses came to Kilkenny. They have established themselves, and their intent probably was if the Abbey Quarter was ready, they would have moved into it. Mm. So you'll have some businesses who came maybe with 10 staff, 15 staff with the intention of growing. They may well look at the Abbey Quarter. Debatable, do you say, are the new jobs they came in the last couple of years on the basis that they were looking at the potential of a place like the Abbey Quarter as to where to it make their final home in Kilkenny, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I suppose at any given time, there's going to be movement. You will have existing businesses who are growing. So even though they're an existing company, if they're creating new jobs... Like I
2: think the issue really is, we want to add jobs into Kilkenny. Absolutely. Now the the whole site it's ten acres, so this is only one element of it. Uh, the the old brew house. Um, it's envisaged that there'll be seven new blocks on the site and fourteen new blocks overall, uh, creating a new urban quarter. I'm I'm reading from the master plan, uh, which is on the the, the Abbey Quarter uh, website. Um. Uh, you know what What kind of time frame overall it's a really long-tailed project it's not like 2024 uh, what what kind of are we halfway through the plan or are we quarter into the plan when will this we'll the 10 acres you know be into the
4: plan a, a third. i would have always felt it was about a 15 year plan and we're five years into it. Um, and I suppose just t- to remind people, we are talking about mixed use. We're not talking about all of the buildings. You're talking about being offices. We are looking at small retail, small services to complement, I suppose, what else will be happening down in the Abbey Quarter, very much complementing what's happening in Kilkenny already on the High Street, etc. and um, But we do need to bring life at the ground floor of buildings. You're looking at residential. We're looking at, hopefully a third-level campus when the TUSe gets established. So if anyone was to look at the master plan and also the design guidelines, the design guidelines that were adopted by the council actually give the mix... Yeah. of what will be allowed
2: on the site. What about so, uh, the third-level uh, uh, campus? Sorry. sorry, Colette. The third-level campus, you mentioned you're here five years. I think people have been talking about third-level in Kikeni probably 35 years. That You know, are we within striking distance of that, do you think? It, it's been well, a it, it's been a very difficult project for the southeast with uh, Carlow IT and WIT, tortuous progress towards amalgamation. You know,
4: and it was... The recent In recent years, and I suppose I'm well familiar with the issue of the third level, because I worked in Waterford for 20-odd years, so I'd be well familiar, I suppose, of the whole debate about third level and the need for a university for the South East. And then, I suppose, government policy moved on in the last five, six years about technological universities and the requirement in order to achieve technological university status that at least two ITs had to merge. So that's the process that's been gone through, I suppose that's been debated up and down. And at this stage now, there's a fairly... Defined timeline is the way I'd put it. Mm. Now, I have no direct involvement in making this application, but my understanding is the timeline for Waterford and Carlo to make that application is probably April. Then there's an international assessment panel, and the timeline that has been set out by the government and national level is that the designation should happen by the 1st of January 2022.
2: Okay, so designation, but then getting it to Kilkenny a whole different, or an, a campus, another another think, project.
4: Yeah, and I think what's clear, very. Clear and look, at, We're all listening to debate about headquarters and everything else, and to be clear, my understanding is there is no decision going to be made on headquarters or anything else, because it will actually be the new board of the Technological University of the South East, assuming it gets the designation, will be making the decisions after the 1st of January.
2: Okay, Colette, uh, we, we've got to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for that update. Good to hear um, uh, about how it's going. A lot of interest, as you will understand. But thank you for taking the time to come on with us this morning.
4: Yeah, and I'd say, John, if anyone does have an interest in the site, they can see the presentation that was given to the council on our own website, the council website. And then Jason Clerken is the CEO of the Abbey Porter Partnership. And feel free to make contact with Jason.
2: Absolutely. But overall, uh, Colette, you're feeling fairly optimistic about it how does the how does the you know the controversy and the allegations of sort of white elephant and doubt over it play out with people who are looking um, to come in? Because a lot of these international companies, they do a Google search first and often the controversy can come up top of the agenda. Does that help or hinder um, people looking? Well, I looking? don't
4: think it can help, is all I'd say. Okay. And I think we all need to put our best foot forward um, from where I'm sitting. What I would say is I'm, when I leave you here now, John, I'll probably put out a few pots and pans and I'll be doing a bit of bacon. Mm-hmm i have never judge the cake when it's in the mixing bowl. <laughs> so we'll just have to wait and let it, like it's going to be slow. I'd say it's a 15-year project, but I think in the next six months, assuming we get back on site fairly soon, I think people will see the quality of what we're delivering when it comes to the public realm, the park, etc. And hopefully in the next, week, two weeks, we're due to get a decision from on board Panala on the urban street and the park. Mm. And I think if we get to deliver that project in the next three years, it will be A game
2: changer. Well, look, hopefully, Colette, you have all the right ingredients in the cake that is the Abbey Quarter, and we look forward to seeing you take it out of the oven sooner rather than later. Thanks a million. Thank you, you, Colette. That was uh, Colette uh, Byrne, who's the Chief Executive of Kilkenny County Council, talking to us about the Abbey Quarter. Uh, We're going to talk about a really exciting local business after this break.
1: The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's
0: largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie
2: Casey Law, indeed, John Purcell with you. It's just 11 and a half minutes away from uh, 12, 12 o'clock. I'm getting ahead of myself. 11 and a half minutes away from 10 o'clock when Edward Hayden comes up. And just a reminder to anyone driving in the south of Kilkenny that the road is currently closed between Mullnavat and Well after a covi- collision. Please avoid the area if possible and stay tuned. Edward Hayden will have updates on that throughout the morning. Now, as we all know, the challenges of uh, two business of COVID, uh, but as well as challenges, there are also opportunities to develop new products and services. So I'm delighted to be joined on the phone by Mairead Cochlin of CR Payroll, based in McDonough Junction in Kilkenny, who over the last year has grown her company dramatically with further growth on the cards. Good morning, Maraid.
0: morning, John, and thanks for having me
2: on. Pleasure. Tell us about CR Payroll and what you actually do.
0: So, what we do is we act as the backup to your payroll team. So, I suppose payroll is a critical function. If your people don't get paid, there are, I suppose, far reaching consequences. So what we do is we ensure that that will never happen by being there in the background, ready to step in if for any reason your payroll people aren't available to you.
2: Yeah, so basically you're offering an emergency service. Um, so peace of mind is, is, is very much what you're offering. And as you say, you know, it's all great having fantastic work and everybody loves their jobs. But if they don't get paid because the payroll person is out sick, that's a bit of a disaster. That's the space you're in, really.
0: It is, absolutely, and I suppose our people are very seasoned payroll people, they have many years of experience, so if they do step in, the payroll is, you know, paid on time and paid accurately.
2: So discuss how you actually work with the company. So I go along and say, great, Mairead, sounds fantastic, sign me up. What do you actually do then?
0: So I suppose the next step is then that we would do the setup phase, so that would involve us documenting your specific payroll, and I suppose payroll is payroll but every company is slightly different so I thought we would capture all the specifics of your your individual payroll
2: yeah
0: um we would then also arrange remote access into your payroll system so once that phase then has been completed we then operate within a contractual to our SLA so that means if at nine o'clock your payroll person doesn't turn up by 11 o'clock we will have one of our people working on your payroll
2: Yeah, so in these days, if the the file has to be with the bank by 12 o'clock and the hard-pressed chief executive gets a call to say, I'm sorry, I can't be in, Um, I have to go for a COVID test and my broadband is terrible and I can't log in remotely, the chief executive or financial controller picks up the phone and gets on to see our payroll. That's it, is it?
0: That's it, exactly, and then we, we jump straight in and we we process the payroll to, to make sure that the deadline isn't
2: missed. So how's, the, how, how's business going for you? I understand your three years in operation um, started small like everybody else, um, but uh, how are things going?
0: Things are going very well, I suppose. I mean, the COVID has been really terrible for a lot of people, um, but I suppose for us, you know, from a business point of view anyway, um, that, you know, I suppose it's been a kind of, uh, kind of helps companies to see the risk of people not being available.
2: Because so, continuity is critical, isn't it? And payroll is at the heart of business, because it, it, it really it is, impacts. absolutely. Yeah. Um. And talk to us about your choice. I mentioned at the top of the programme, you're actually a Cork woman. Why Kilkenny?
0: So, I worked previously for Cork um and I had a team at Kilkenny, so when I set up then on my own I really was very keen to bring some of those people with me because I suppose we've had a great working relationship over the years and you know a level of trust to built up and they're they're really strong people. So I suppose they're a mixture of kind of Kilkenny natives and blowins like myself. So um I suppose that was how we started out, you know, basing ourselves in Kilkenny.
2: Mm. we so were talking suppose, y- sorry, go on Mared.
0: Um I suppose it had, you know, huge advantages really being in Kilkenny. You know, I mean there's great quality office space, good value office space, I suppose things we
2: weren't really aware of when we first decided to, to be in Kenney. Yeah, now I was talking to you uh, during the week and you told me that you're currently at about 12 or 14 employees, I can't remember exactly, but you're you're going to go to about 40 by the end of the year. That's fantastic growth. Tell us about the whole office space thing because we were talking to Colette Byrne before that. How do you manage your need for office space in such a period of of rapid growth?
0: Well, I suppose we're kind of in strange times at the moment in that a lot of people are working remotely, obviously. So um, I suppose we're kind of in a period of flux in terms of our requirement for office space, whereas, you know, before we would have had a greater requirement than we do now, even though we're growing and we're hiring. um, You know, a lot of people are home-based at the moment. So I suppose I see, you know, towards the tail end of the year when, when everything comes back to kind of some sort of normality. That we will have an increased need for office space from where we are now so at the moment we're, we're in mcdonough junction obviously the space is very nice and uh i suppose ideally we would like to kind of expand our footprint there if we can
2: yeah so as someone who's looking at dramatically expanding your business um you see a future for the traditional office
0: i do because i think you know there are huge advantages to the collaboration that happens when people are in the office You know, people learn from each other, people help each other, and I suppose our culture would be very much we're all in it together and we all help each other out. So I think the office, you know, helps that, and, you know, while that can happen remotely it is a little bit more difficult.
2: Tell us about your expansion plans. The UK, a big market, and I was looking at your website, you have a lot of really impressive, um, I think Ford are one of your uh, clients in the UK. Tell us about your expansion. Presumably, you're not travelling over and back. Uh, definitely, you're not travelling over and back, but opportunities there with technology takes a lot of air miles off you. It
0: does, absolutely, and it gives us a kind of a huge time-saving and obviously a cost-saving as well in terms of, you know, flights and even mileage to Dublin and all this sort of thing. So Good
2: for the environment. Absolutely.
0: Good for the environment, yeah. So, I mean, I suppose all we selling now is over the phone or on a team's meeting, for example. So, I suppose that has become the new norm and people are very accepting of it, whereas, I suppose, pre-COVID, it, that would have been very abnormal and I suppose people would have been pushing for a face-to-face meeting. So, um, I suppose that, that is an improvement in the process for us and it means we can sell more easily into the UK and I suppose generate more meetings
2: more yeah, early. And, and uh, dramatic growth on the cards are you're planning for, for this year to triple your workforce almost?
0: Yes, absolutely, yeah. So I suppose the, our, our our client base belief at the moment is probably 30% UK, 70% Irish. But by the end of the year we, we probably estimate that we'll be 50-50.
2: 50 50 okay so um and where do you think um beyond 2021 like uh, what are your what are your growth horizons say over the next five years how how big do you want to see your payroll to get?
3: well i suppose
0: every company or every organization has a payroll so i suppose all of those organizations and companies are potentially you know clients of ours in one shape or another so, between the UK and Ireland, there are 95,000 organisations or companies with a headcount of over 100. Wow. So, I, so I suppose we uh, we have a long way to go um, in terms of, I suppose, the, you know, saturating the market or anything like that. So I suppose we, uh, we envisage that we have a lot of work to do in the UK and Ireland and, and that's what we're focused on for the moment anyway.
2: Well, look, Mairead, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you. It sounds like a really exciting time for your company and uh, thanks for joining us this morning on the programme and people can check out web, your website if they want to find out about your services.
0: Perfect.
2: Thanks very much, John. Thanks, Mairead. Uh, that's uh, Mairead Cochlin of CR Payroll joining us this morning on The Bottom Line. That's all we've got time for this week on the programme. Remember, if you have any comments or ideas you'd like to get to us, email the Bottom Line at caseylaure96fm.com and you can listen back to this or any episode of the show on our podcast, The Bottom Line. Just search for The Bottom Line, Casey Lore on any of your podcast platforms. Thanks to all our guests this week. Jim Power Edwina Hughes Colette Byrne and Mairead Coughlin thanks to producer Deirdre Drummy. but thanks most of all to you for listening um, we'll be back next week in the meantime keep your distance whole firm have a good weekend and we'll talk to you again next Saturday just after nine on The Bottom Line <laughs>
1: The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with
0: thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. Www.omf.ie.